Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. And on this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bob Romano, and he'll be answering your questions on the Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of these podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. And also hashtag fly fishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. Let other people know about the great shows that we produce here. The content of this podcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Bob Romano about the Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. These ferry anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Bob, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Now, you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our home page, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Bob's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Bob's latest book, River Flowers. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question or questions, sometimes I do two-part questions, will be about something that Bob and I talk about during the show. Just submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage, and you may win Bob's book. Now, that's the same place that you can ask questions during the show at, so it's the same text box there. So listen closely, take some good notes, pay attention, type fast, and maybe you'll win Bob's book, River Flowers. Our guest tonight is Bob Romano. Bob and his wife, Trish, have owned a camp in the Rangeley Lakes region of western Maine for nearly 40 years. Many outdoor writers concentrate on the how-to aspects of fly fishing, and Bob prefers to examine why we fish while using the rivers, lakes, and streams of Maine's great north woods as his literary canvas. Bob is the author of the Rangeley Lakes trilogy that includes North of Easy, 
and which won second place in the 2010 Outdoor Writers Best Book Contest. His book of essays, Shadows in the Stream, is often used by anglers as a guide to fishing the pools and runs of the region. And his most recent book, The River King Fly Fishing Novel, is published by Western River Media. Actually, that's not his most recent one. His book that he just came out was River Flowers, the one we're giving away tonight. And due to be released uh, this December, yeah, is uh, River Flowers, which has been released and is available for purchase now. The legendary master main guide and author, George Smith, said, you will really enjoy the River King. As soon as you finish it, you'll plan a fishing adventure in the Rangeley region. Bob's essays have appeared in various anthologies, including Christmas in the Wild, Fresh Fiction for Freshwater Fishing, and Wild Branch, an anthology of nature, environmental, and place-based writing. He also writes for a number of magazines as well as the online publication Midcurrent. Bob, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hey, Roger. Good to be with you. Good to have you. I suppose it's a cold night out there, just as well as it is here in Colorado, <laughs> considering yeah, the pretty, storm pretty you guys much. just got out there, huh? Yep. Yep. Yep, all snowed in, huh? Yeah, I think we got about 10, 12 inches here today, which we need. We need the water here in Colorado. That's a good thing. Let's dive in here. As we said in the bio, you've owned and operated a camp in Rangeley Lakes area for almost 40 years. So tell us when we talk about, because this was news to me, tell us what a camp is up in Maine and how you ended up where you are up there and what brought you to that area. Sure. There is a distinction, I guess, between a sporting lodge and a camp. A sporting lodge is where sports will go, and you know they'll be able to book time there, and they'll have their own cabin, and they'll have guides to take them out fishing. A camp in New England is really nothing more than a seasonal cabin, a cottage, or a vacation home. My wife and I have owned our cabin on... Ziskahas Lake, which is the most western of the lakes in the Rangeley Lakes region, for just about 40 years. And when we were dating, I was really just getting into fly fishing, and my wife had spent all of her summers in Conway Lake, New Hampshire, which is about three hours south of the Rangeley Lakes. And we went up there to spend a week or two, and she showed me around and showed me where she stayed as a kid. And Conway Lake is actually a bass and pickerel lake and did a lot of fishing there. But it was, it was a little crowded, and we started looking north, and literally three and a half hours north, we came upon this you know, just beautiful area of Maine, pristine lakes and rivers, and we stayed at a place called Bozbuck Mountain Camps and fell in love with the area, and we actually married the year following, and the year after that, we purchased the camp on the same lake that the uh, Bozbuck Mountain Camps is uh, located on. Wow, wow, that's quite the story. And you've been going up there ever since. <laughs> yeah, nice. It, it is wild country. The, most of the camps up there, well, just to give you an idea, we have no electricity at our camp, actually. Uh, we have our own generators. We generate our own electricity. We have no telephone, no cell phone service, no television. The only outside source of entertainment is the radio and we get one station and it's the CBC station out of Canada and when we look north we can see the Boundary Mountains which are between Quebec and the main border 
it's a pretty rugged country. It's still, you know, fairly primitive, fairly wild. My wife, when I'm up there, I'm only thinking of one thing, which is basically the brook trout. But my wife will drive out every other night. She'll drive about six miles down a logging road, and you pull around a particular bend, and if you just move around in the right direction, you get cell phone service, and she'll be able to call home and make sure that everybody's okay. But that's the type of country that we're in, yep. Yeah, yeah. You get pretty unplugged up there. That's nice. It sounds like a beautiful place up there. I'm sure that's why you enjoy it. Now, so you've been fishing all your life pretty much? Yeah, I would say, I mean, really fishing probably from when I could walk, like many of Mm -hmm. us, you know, I I would, well, my dad grew up in the Bronx. Yeah, he was not an outdoorsman. And when he first took me fishing, we actually moved over the Hudson River into New Jersey. And he would take me fishing with worms. And we would fish in streams where the only fish there were carp. And he would use dough balls and cornbread and corn and all sorts of concoctions to catch these bottom fish. And it was really only until I went to college I discovered uh, trout and fly fishing. But, yeah, I've been Ah, fishing ever since, sure. When did you start your writing, which is obviously fly fishing related? I'm assuming it was – when did you start with that? Well, I wanted to to make my living as a writer out of college. Oh, okay. Uh, but I had no, I really had no life experience and didn't really have much to write about. Instead, I actually became a lawyer. Well, I try to keep that secret, but in my, in my other <laughs> Okay, in we my won't other tell life, anybody, yeah. That's right, yeah, well, now here we go, right? But in my other life, I'm an yeah. attorney, and, you know, we work with words. That's why I became an attorney, gave me the opportunity to do that. And I guess about 20 years ago, and that would be after having our camp in western Maine for 20 years, now I had something to write about. I had this, you know, wonderful area and plus the fly fishing and I decided look this is something that I can write about so I guess I started about 20 years ago my first book is way out of print at this point and it was kind of a diary of fly fishing on a small stream but then I wrote this little book called shadows in the stream which is basically a book of essays that each chapter or each essay was a story about a different lake stream or pond in the Rangeley Lakes region and in telling the story of, of the water, I was also giving the history of the region and a little bit of a story about my family and the time that we had spent at that point. It was about 20 years up in the region. That little book went through four printings. There was even a 10th anniversary edition that had been done. It's out of print now. It's a tough book to find. I guess it's out there on eBay or wherever. But that that book just did so well, and the local people were just so generous with their compliments, and I know they really enjoyed the book, and it's really a favorite of mine. And then from there, I decided to, um, I wanted to write a novel about the region, and it ended up becoming a trilogy, you know, three novels. And from there, I just kept going. I kept writing, and the two most recent books are The River King, which is a novel, and the uh, and River Flowers, which is the collection of stories that just came out on December 15th. Yeah, yeah, we've got those on our website there on our homepage for people to link through oh, to. Oh, great. Yeah, so uh, they can find those books there. Well, that's great. That's great, yeah. Different way to work words than writing contracts, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> you got to really switch gears. I mean, and I'm kind of serious about that. I mean, I started my 
my career, I mean, I went to school for um, commercial illustration for photography. I have a degree oh, wow. in commercial illustration. Yep. And so I had a commercial studio shooting all kinds of advertising and, and so forth for the beginning part of my career. And yet during that time, I found it very hard to go out and do kind of creative stuff, you know, with mm -hmm. my photography. Yep. Because yep. I worked all day doing the advertising. And I just, it was hard for me to switch gears and think creatively and let loose, sure. you know, let loose of the business. I don't know. Did you find that as a challenge for yourself? Yeah, it's a completely different mindset. Now, again, I, right. I was an attorney for 20 years when I wrote the first book. So I had the attorney part down. And I have my own practice, so I have folks working for me. For me, there was just so much more satisfaction in the creative process and in writing. And it's funny, every now and then I'll get a call at the office where a reader somehow finds me and you know, want to ask a question either about the books or, or about fishing. And my staff gets a kick out of it because, you know, they'll say, you know, a client calls and the guy's on the phone for 10 minutes and then shoes him away. But one of these folks calls about his books or about fly fishing and the next thing you know, an hour has gone by and he's still yakking away on the phone. <laughs> So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. It shows I mean, you where I your mean, love is, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. David in Connecticut wrote in and he says he enjoys your novels. They're all good reads, but north of, is it easy or easy? E easy, yeah, easy. Easy. And west of Rangeley are my favorites. Great storyline, characters, and settings. I'm curious how you choose and develop the characters. Yeah. Before I answer that, so north of easy. So easy doesn't exist. It's a play on words. And the idea is that in this area of the Rangeley Lakes, it's really a tough country, and it's economically depressed. So in a sense, it's north of easy, E-A-S-Y, meaning it's just tough. Yeah. And the actual town is Okwasik. That's the actual name of the town that I'm writing about in that novel. And I also didn't want to use the real name or that sort of thing. So I came up with this idea of easy. But as far as the where do I get my settings, I mean, you can't have a better place than western Maine. You know, Roger, out where you are in Colorado, you've got majestic mountains and, you know, wide forever rivers. Maine is different. Maine is as wild, but it's more of a moody, almost morose, dark beauty. We don't have those long vistas and those mountains that extend into the sky. What we have are dark hills, thunderstorms that one minute it's pouring rain, the next minute it's hail and snow, and then suddenly it's you know 58 degrees and, and warm all in the same afternoon. Everything to me seems to be more of a dark, brooding sort of beauty. That's the setting. The storyline, that's a tough one. I mean, I knew that I wanted to write. My main character in those novels that David is talking about is an Italian-American fishing guide. I wanted to write a little bit about my own heritage. My name obviously ends in a vowel. And the idea here was that, you know, uh, J.D. Salinger, he, he wrote the great American novel and then fell off the face of the earth. And you know, nobody could find him and knew what he was doing. The idea here was that Salvatore D'Amico, this main character, he writes the great American novel in the 60s, and then he falls off to, again, off, nobody knows where he is. Well, it turns up he's kind of given up on everything, and he's now left 
he's purchased a cabin in Rangeley, and that's where he's living, and he becomes a fishing guide. And the story came from, I literally was just playing around with an idea of, my cabin has a porch that overlooks the lake. So I had this idea of an older fellow, you know, around my age, I suppose, and he's sitting in a cabin, and he's looking down, and, but instead of looking at down at a lake, he's looking down at a river, and there's this very attractive woman, and she uh, has this beautiful cast. He could see the trout rising, and in his mind, he's thinking, instead of dead man walking, dead fish finning, she's going to get that fish. So I wrote about 10 pages, and after doing that, I just said to myself, geez, I'd like to know more about these two people. You know, why is he sitting on the cabin looking at this woman? Who is this woman? And that was it. I ended up writing hmm. three novels about these two characters. And somehow that's how, sometimes that's how the writing process goes. Um, I really never know where I'm going to end up. In fact, sometimes an idea doesn't work out at all. It never comes to light. But I'll start a book, usually based upon one or two characters, and Every day I'll just sit down at the laptop and, and decide, you know, who are these characters and what are they doing. And I, I kind of just follow along mm -hmm. with their life, and hopefully it ends up with a novel. Yeah, yeah. Do you get any inspiration from local characters? Sure. I, I would yeah, assume lot, there are some pretty interesting yeah, a lot, people up there. Yeah, a lot of the supporting cast, if you will, are composites of people that I know or that I've met. I often write about poachers. And there is one heck of a character that, you know, I don't want to get sued, but, you know, I know him and he knows me and the wardens, he's the bane of the wardens uh, in our area because, uh, you know, he just doesn't feel that the laws apply to him. And, you know, he's part, in my book, if there is a poacher, he'll be part of that character. But most of my yeah, characters yeah. are composites of, you know, one, two, three yeah. different people. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. David, and well, same David in Connecticut, uh, he had another question here. He says, having read your novels, they sparked an interest in checking out the Rangeley area. I'm considering a fishing camping trip this coming fall. My passion is pursuing native brookies on small remote streams or at least traveled paths. Any recommendations on time period, August, September? And then doing a DIY adventure camping trip and hiring a guide, any recommendations for a, for a day or two versus staying at one of the camps? Sure. That's actually a great question. There are two types of rivers or streams in this region. Uh, one are the larger rivers where you're really fishing for trophy trout, trophy brook trout. So the brook trout are native to the region. I mean, they've been there before the Abenaki came down in their birch bark canoes. And they are the, pretty much the largest brook trout you'll find south of Labrador. Back in the 1800s, you know, these fish were five and six pounds. You're not going to get them that large anymore. But a 16-inch native brook trout is not unusual, and they could go to 20 to 24 inches. So these are large native brook trout. But, again, they're going to be in the bigger rivers. But then you also have the headwater streams. And quite honestly, as I grow older, those are my favorite places, and that's what David is talking about here. And there, that could be a 30, 40, 50 fish day. Literally every cast will have a flash of a brook trout. Now, those trout aren't going to be much larger than 10 inches, but you can literally drive down a logging road, and if you see moving water, you can be assured that there are going to be brook trout in that stream. So if David is looking to camp and hire a guide, 
One very specific suggestion I would make is the Kasuptic campgrounds have wilderness campsites that you can rent, and they'll literally put you right on the water, right on a stream. And, you know, it's this small stream-type fishing. And from your campsite, you can get into the stream, and you can literally wade 10, 15 miles all the way up into Canada or in the opposite direction. I certainly would recommend them. And I don't know as you need a guide if you're staying at one of those wilderness campsites. But if you wanted a guide, one of the really good guides in the area is Brett Dam, D-A-M-M, and he runs the Rangeley Region Sports Shop. So you could just, you know, you can Google the Rangeley Region Sports Shop, and Brett's name will come up, and uh, he can certainly show you around. Another good guide is Bob Duport, D-E-P-O-R-T, I believe his name is. And, again, you can Google Bob, and his name should come up, and uh, you can see his credentials. Those are two guides, and staying at those campgrounds will give you a lot of small stream fishing. I think that will work well for you, David. Yeah. Yeah, good, good. Well, let's uh, take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about trout a bit more because, like you say, they have quite a history. So give me uh, 30 seconds here. We'll be right back and talk more about brook trout in the Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. Sounds good. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, and bonefish and snook all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesleyflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. Again, that's charlielesleyflyfishing.com or 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Bob Romano about the Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, just go to our homepage, use that Q&A text box there, and send us your question. We'll try to get it answered on the show tonight. Bob, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? Obviously, just finished the new books. That I know all books take a while to get done, so you've probably been busy at that. And tell us about that and what else you're up to. Well. Obviously, in the wintertime, I'm not doing too much fishing in Maine, but we're really promoting the book River Flowers. That came out December 15th, and it's doing well. We're very happy with it, and I've been attending the fly fishing shows. I just completed the three days at Edison in New Jersey, uh, and we did that show, and we're going to be doing a show in Marlboro in late April. That Marlboro fly fishing show normally would have went on the third weekend in January, but because of the virus, they postponed it. So last week in April, that'll be three days at the Marlboro Show, and I'm at the the bookstore booth. I'm there for all three days, and it gives me a chance to meet the folks from New England and sign books and, you know, answer their questions. I'm also going to be at the Lancaster Fly Fishing Show, and that's a two-day show. I believe it's a Saturday and Sunday in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and that's going to be the end of March. So that's pretty much it right now. I haven't, normally I'd be writing for Midcurrent. I usually provide essays to Marshall Kitchen there 
oh maybe once a month but I've slowed up a little bit on that while I'm doing the uh, I'm on the promotion circuit right yeah it's so good uh, to see Ben from the, uh, being able to do the fly fishing shows again that yeah was, we, uh, we lost the whole day. year last yeah. year right yeah yeah I really feel bad for him and of course every all his attendees of course we all forward to those shows you know, we have we have one in denver here too and yeah uh, yep. but i'm so happy for him that he's able to, to pull it off this year so good for all of us yeah that he's able yep. to do that yeah so great great now going back to the brook trout i don't know that everybody knows this but i learned it at some point in time that you know when the settlers first came to the east coast from europe that that's all that was there was really brook trout there were no rainbows or browns that's or true. any of those things those were all introduced uh, later i've got that right don't i yeah that's absolutely yeah. true in many of the states we either fished out the brook trout or because of development and pollution you know many of the states lost their brook trout population or at the very mm -hmm. least the trout are just fingerlings at, at this point so maine is one of the few states where as i said literally those brook trout are as large as you're going to find south of labrador and again yeah. those are native brook trout to the region now we also have landlocked salmon but the landlocked salmon were introduced in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So those were hatchery fish back then. So they're not native to the region, but they did so well that at least in the Rangeley Lakes region, we're not stocking them. So what you're fishing over are wild fish. It's either those wild landlocked salmon or the native brook trout, and those are our principal sporting fish. The landlocked salmon are spawning and reproducing there then, yeah. Yes, they are, yeah. And, I mean... The times to fish the region are, for trophy fish, really, are twofold. We have ice on our lakes usually until the, right through to the second week of May. Our season starts April 1st, but locals will be out maybe to a tailwater where there is some running water. But many of the streams are still ice-bound, and certainly the lakes are ice-bound. This is changing a little bit with the changes in the weather and the global warming. But by the third week of May, ice is out. And as soon as the ice is out, smelt, which are bait fish, they're now spawning. And so they're leaving the lakes and they're moving up the rivers. And the big fish, the sporting fish, are following them. And so now the sport, those big fish are in the rivers. A little bit of a circus atmosphere in those last two weeks of May because uh, everybody knows this is the time to catch a trophy trout or a trophy salmon mm -hmm. and a second time is end of September when those same fish many of them will go back into the lakes for the summer but then they'll come back out again in September they're having their own spawning run and now they're going right back up those same rivers those are two times when if you're fishing the big rivers and you want to catch large fish those are the two times to do it now Brook trout here in Colorado are mainly in the, the smaller mountain streams, and they don't grow very large. They're very opportunistic feeders, and it's kind of like you were saying before, you know, fly out there and they're going to hit it. It doesn't really even matter what fly it is. If it's floating and looks buggy, they're interested. But what about these larger brook trout in the river you've been talking about? seems to me they're going to be a more particular what are their yeah. feeding habits, and are, are they harder to catch? Yeah. yeah, you're right. Fishing those small streams, which, quite frankly, I enjoy doing, 
I've got a six and a half foot cane rod or a seven foot you know bamboo rod, and you can fish those small streams all day. You'll never see another angler. I mean, you're out there on your own. That's part of what I enjoy. So you know, you can literally have two flies in your pocket. If you're fishing upstream, pick your favorite dry fly. I happen to use a pheasant tail with a parachute wing and I'll, I could just use that all day. And then downstream, or if it's summertime, maybe an elk hair caddis. Downstream, pick your favorite wet fly, and you're good to go. But on the larger rivers, yeah, the fish are certainly more particular. Now, those last two weeks of May, everything is subsurface. You're not going to see any dry fly action at all. There are basically two ways to go. The locals, well, I should say the traditionalists, are fishing with streamers, and they're trying to match those smelt that are in the water. The younger guys, quite frankly, the, the guys that are fishing, I guess now, as opposed to the older fellas, they're nymphing, and they're catching just as many fish, if not more, using all the different nymph st- techniques that are now out there versus the streamers. I'm not the greatest nymph fisherman, and so I will go back and forth between streamers and wet flies. And the one secret I'm going to give away tonight is if you have one wet fly, make it a gold-ribbed hare's ear. Believe it or not, that Mm. traditional fly from the 1800s, I guess over in England, I guess they came up with it, but a gold-ribbed hare's ear wet fly with a fixed wing. I know the soft tackle is very much in vogue, but with a fixed wing, you could fish that fly and that fly alone in maybe sizes, I mean, anywhere from a 12 and 14 to even, you know, sometimes a 16 or 18. And you can fish it really deep. You can fish it in the surface film. You can fish it midway, even put a little silicon on it and fish it flat on the surface, and you're just going to nail fish left and right. But using streamers, you want to use something with a white wing in the springtime. I don't know. That white wing, I suppose, has something to do with imitating a smelt. But the white wing really attracts them in those last two weeks of May. And there is a traditional streamer called a black ghost, and a fellow by the name of Herb Welch came up with that, uh, I guess in the 1920s, and you know he was in this Rangeley Lakes region. And that black ghost works as good as good today as as it did when he created it. Now he created it with a saddle hackle wing, white wing. I've given up on the saddle hackle, and I use marabou. And uh. I said I was only going to give you one secret, but the, another secret is, you know, that saddle hackle if it's not tied just right your streamer is going to kind of go round and round under the water there. It's not going to look like a bait fish. It's just not going to, it's not going to float correctly. But if you've got marabou, you yeah. can't go wrong. Yeah. It, it's just so easy to work with, and it's got that undulating quality. It really right. knocks them dead. Yeah. And then the other traditional yeah. fly was tied by Carrie Stevens, and again, she's known in the area, and that's the gray ghost. That can be used really any time in the season. I pretty much use these. And, of course, all the newer streamers with the synthetic material, they're all going to work well. Streamers and nymphs in the first part of the season. And it really, as, as June starts to come on, those last few days of May and early June, you're going to start to see the fish now are looking toward the surface. And that's when, you know, we'll have the typical quill hatches. But I don't know about Colorado, but when I'm home, you know, I'm fishing the west branch of the Delaware and the Beaver Kill and mm-hmm. the Catskill streams. And there, our brown trout are very picky. You know, you really do need to match the hatch. We don't have consistent hatches in this part of Maine. Yes, you might have a quill hatch, maybe a Hendrickson hatch. It may only last an hour. 
and then maybe two hours. That's about it. And it may only be going on in one part of the stream. And your buddy that's only 300 yards downstream, he's not seeing a single quill on the water. So these are very sporadic so that the fish are very opportunistic. And you don't really need to match the hatch. If, if there's any sort of quill on the water, almost any quill pattern, you know, is going to work for you. When the caddises yeah, come yeah. on, you know, later in the year, you might have to be a little more specific in the pattern you're going to use. But again, even these larger fish are much more opportunistic, and so if you get close to the size and the color, you're going to be fine. It's not so much matching the hatch as it is, you know, your presentation. Right. And most of the fishing, even when we've got a lot of dry fly action, most of your fish are going to be caught under the surface. I pretty much use wet flies throughout the entire season. Now and okay. then I'll go to a traditional streamer. Yeah, I suppose, you know, if there's, like you say, not much bug activity and it's very sporadic, that they have to be opportunistic. I mean, they got to eat, so yeah, um, yeah. they got to look at everything, I suppose. Yeah, no. but and, not, and, and not as thing, opportunistic yeah. as those little small stream brook trout. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And our rivers, the, the larger rivers, are... Basically, it's just lots of really heavy water, lots of rapids with large pools, you know, in between. And so it's another reason mm. why they have to be optimistic because they're battling those rapids and they don't have much time to see what's going to be over them. There's very yeah. few, there's very little placid water throughout this entire region. When I describe, we're going to talk later about the rivers, but the McGalloway River, the lower portion of the McGalloway River, which is pretty well known in the area, there was a movie that was out a number of years ago called No Country for Old Men. Well, when I describe the McGalloway River, I describe it as no river for old men. And I'm one of those old men. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, a hard, tough, it's a tough river. Hard to river stand in, in, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, again, that, yeah. the, the fish don't have much time to, to be you know, looking at what's going over. And so, again, subsurface nymphing really, really works well in these more turbulent streams. Now, you had mentioned a fly, the gray ghost. Right. That's got some history to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. If you were a, a writer or an artist, a poet in the 1920s, I would say the place to be was Paris, France. I mean, that's where Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Picasso and all the greats of that time kind of flocked to Paris. If you were a fisherman in the 1920s, the place to be was Upper Dam, which is in the heart of the Rangeley Lakes region. and in the 20s, 30s, and, and 40s, Carrie Stevens and her husband Wallace had a cottage at Upper Dam. And nobody knew Carrie at the time. Wallace was the preeminent guide. And Carrie, who uh, I think it was her, I could be wrong on this, but I think maybe it was her father was a haberdasher. And so she had access to feathers and fur and whatnot. And she would tie flies. She had no vice. She would just tie them literally in her hand. And the story goes that uh, one day, you know, she's at Upper Dam. And by the way, she used to fish with worms, but uh, she decided to try out one of her streamers in Upper Dam. And she caught, a, I think it was a five-pound brook trout. And she won second prize in the field and stream contest that year for that fish. And when they told her story and she said, you know, I caught it on this particular fly. By the way, it was not the gray ghost. It was a different fly. She became famous, and from then on, everybody wanted to purchase her streamers, and the Grey Ghost is one of those, and nobody today knows Wallace, that her husband, the preeminent guy, but everybody knows Carrie Stevens. 
she's just oh, one of the notables from uh, this region. And the region's nickname actually is Land of Fishing Legends because of the, just with so many people that gravitated to the region. Speaking yeah. of legends, Mark in Connecticut wrote in and he said, ask Bob about the legend of White Nose Pete. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> so, again, you know, back in the, um, in the 30s and 40s, there was this fellow called Chang Wheeler. Chang was actually known for his decoys. He was one of the best amateur decoy builders in the country. He won all sorts of awards for that. But he was also a character and uh, would like to tell stories. And uh, he came up with this story. Some people called the fish White-Nosed Pete. Other people called him Pincushion Pete. And the way the story goes is that the pincushion lived under Upper Dam. And the way Native Americans would count coup, pincushion would count coup on the trout fishermen. And so if you ever <laughs> saw him, and by the way, he's lived for over 100 years. For all I know, he's still under Upper Dam. And he's so okay. old that, of course, his nose grew white. That's how he got the name White Nose Pete. But legend has it that if he ever does rise and you see him, He's got every fly, streamer, and nymph known to man hooked into his jaw because he took great delight in just turning and taking everybody's fly. With this story in mind, Shang is out fishing one day with a fellow called Joe Bates. Well, Joseph Bates is known to many as Colonel Bates, but at the time he was just a young fisherman, and he ties into a very large trout, and Shang kind of smiles and says, Hey, Joe, I think that's Pincushion Pete. And, you know, Joe's line is almost bent in two, and at the last minute, Pete breaks him off. The fish is gone. And a couple years later, Joe enlists in the Army. It's World War II, and he's a captain at the time, and he writes a letter to Shang, and he says, If I ever get out of this damn war, I'm going to come back and catch Pincushion Pete. So what does Shang do? Being a decoy builder, he builds basically a mount of a pincushion with all the flies in and whatnot. He takes a picture of it, and he sends it back to Captain Bates and says, well, I'm sorry to say, Joe, but I caught pincushion, and here's the proof, and shows him the picture. I thought that was kind of a dirty trick for somebody who's over in the Pacific with fighting in yeah. the war. But that's actually what he did. So for years and years and years, that mount that he created was missing and nobody knew where it went, and just recently it actually resurfaced, and now it's in the Rangeley Lakes Sporting Museum. So anybody who wants to take a look at it or take a picture of it can find it. And a lot of these stories that I'm telling, you can see photographs of these different folks and learn their histories at the museum. It really is worth a day to take a trip. It's located in Oquatic, yeah. Maine. Yep. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, sounds like... Part of the trip to Rangeley Lakes is yes, visiting it is. that yep. museum. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, we need to take a quick break here, but we'll come right back and talk more about the Rangeley Lakes area of Maine. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. 
Again, that's etflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Flying Internet Radio. We're talking with Bob Romano about Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and put your question in that text box there and send it in, and we'll uh, try to get it answered on the show. We do have some questions coming in here, Bob. Let's grab some of these off the Internet. Phil in Kentucky wrote in, and he says, what significant changes have you seen in the fishing over the past 40 years that you've spent in western Maine? Honestly, and this is going to sound like I'm making it up, but I really think the fishing has improved over those years. I can't tell you why. Maybe it's just that I'm getting, becoming a better fisherman, but I'm seeing bigger and more fish as the years go on. Yeah, the region just doesn't, hasn't changed that much, literally since almost the 1800s. I mean, the forest is the forest, and we have logging, and so you are going to see a lot of logging going on. But, you know, quite frankly, they had logging, you know, back then. So you're still fishing in pristine lakes and clean running water. And I can only say that I think the fishing really has held up. Now, I will say maybe the last 10 years, there are more anglers. It is starting to get known. So we are seeing more fishing pressure. But again, that is on those major rivers. You can still get off on your own. And if you just want to go down a logging road, as I said, and look for some running water, you're going to find fish, and you can fish to your heart's content and never see another angler. So that's the, the best answer I think I could give to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was another question came in. Do you feel the area is being overfished? fish with, uh, he has main traffic coming to the area recently. Yeah, I, I would, you know, it, it, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, because I do hear that a lot. I can tell you that most of the folks that are fishing up there are people from Maine, not necessarily from the Ranger Lakes region, but they're people from an hour away, two hours away. If you're coming, say you're coming from New York or New Jersey, that's a nine or ten hour drive. If you're coming from Boston or Connecticut, you know, that's anywhere from a, from a five-hour to a seven-hour drive. So, yes, you're going to get people, by the way, people from Maine, from the area, they call people who vacation there or sports that have come up for a while. Those are people from away. So, yeah, you're going to see people from away on the river. But most of the folks that are up there are from Maine and uh, northern New Hampshire. And what we would consider fishing pressure, just to give you an idea, the lower McGalloway River is probably a mile and a half. Twenty years ago, if I pulled into the lot there by the side of the stream to go fishing, there wouldn't be any cars there at all. I would have that mile and a half to myself. And if I saw a car in the lot, I might turn around and say, "It's you know, i got to go somewhere else. All right, now, 2022, you're going to pull into that lot, and you're probably going to see three or four cars. And that's what we consider uh, pressure. Busy, um, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's busy, seeing three or four cars parked in a lot of a mile and a half of a stream. So you are going to see somebody fishing. But, you know, is that going to interfere with your fishing? No. So, um, yeah. and, I, and I don't see it getting much more pressure than that. But, again, a lot of us, we don't want to see another angler. But you can still do that. You just need to, you know, get it a little farther into the forest and, and maybe fish the smaller streams. Yeah, that's um, that's the same all over, you know. Sure. The less access, the less fishermen. And yep. we have that in Colorado. One of the most famous stretches is the South Platte River. Well, it's within an hour's drive of downtown Denver. So we've got business people coming in and 
yep. jumping in a car and running up and fishing. Well, of course, the locals, major metropolitan area fish, there. well, that gets hammered. It's a tough fishery now to catch fish in, uh, but it's accessible. Yeah. Uh, yep. But go another hour away, and then you start losing people. <laughs> sure. You know, sure. so... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of the same in other places. But that's still pretty good, three. Uh, that's not bad at all, yeah. So we had a couple of questions came in. Uh, Al Markowitz had a few questions from Pennsylvania. He's wondering which months have the most mosquitoes. And then Jim Reed from Maryland <laughs> wrote in here on the Internet and says, when does the black fly season generally begin and end? Let's address the bugs. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So the deal with the, the black flies come first. The black flies want colder weather. And as I said, the, the ice is on the lake until second week of May. You're not going to see any black flies on those last two weeks of May. As June comes on, you probably could get through that first week of June again without any black flies. By the second week of June, Again, depending upon the weather, the black flies are going to start. And by the, the third and fourth week of June, it's going to get bad. And they are bad. And as June goes into July and we start getting those warmer days, the black flies are going to die off, and then we're going to have mosquitoes. And you're going to have the mosquitoes through pretty much all of July. I mean, if you don't want those biting insects, by the second week of June you want to be home and then maybe come back in August. But again, you know, a lot depends upon the weather. If it's a really wet season, you know, obviously the biting insects are going to be worse. If we've got a dry season, they may not be so bad. I find that the black flies, I think, are worse than the mosquitoes, but uh, I guess everybody's different. Now, can you wear a head net or use dope oh, or sure. something? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. You, can, you, you yeah. can do that, yeah. And you can use the, the net. You can certainly use your bug dope. I certainly use it. Come August, the biting insects are gone, but, of course, the fishing isn't going to be as good because it's just warmer in, in August. I mean, a lot uh -huh. of the big fish are now back in the lakes. They've gone back down in the lakes. They'll come back out again in September to spawn. Yeah, that's but what I was still, just going to ask you about. What's yeah. the fall fishing like? Yeah, yeah, the fall fishing, I mean, usually that the last two weeks of September, if we get rain, that's a big if, but if we get rain, those big fish now are going to come back out of the lake and they're going to start their spawning run, and then they'll be in the rivers the way they were in late May. But again, we need okay. the rain in September in order for that to happen. Many times the rain doesn't come until October. Okay. In the springtime, do you get a runoff like we have here in Colorado? We do. Uh, yeah, we 30? do. I mean, yeah. again, yeah, right after ice out. But, you know, but again, that third week of May, by the end of that week, or even during that week, you can fish it. Mm -hmm. A lot depends upon what type of snow we had in the winter. A couple of years, we didn't get the snow that we normally get. Everything's changing. I know there are, yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into a political thing, but, you know, there are these climate deniers. Well, if you're an angler and you're paying attention and you're putting, you know, a lot of time on the water, you're seeing that climate change. And yeah. so that will affect the runoff. Our runoff is not like yours. It doesn't last as long as yours does. Uh -huh. um, it's really maybe a week. And then, yeah, the water's high okay. and the water's cold, but the fish are there. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, Al had a couple other questions. He's uh, asking about bass and pike. Now, are those in the same rivers up there? Well, first of all, that's not my expertise, Al, so I'll do the best I can with it. The region is really brook trout and landlocked salmon. Beyond the lower section of the Megalloway, 
after that mile and a half stretch, the water kind of slows down, and there is bass downstream. I don't fish for them. The Rapid River, which you know, I guess we'll talk about maybe later after the next break, but the Rapid River is known for its trophy brook trout. Somebody illegally, you know, put bass in that river, and now it's the bane uh-huh. of fishermen. I mean, the uh, fisheries officials have tried to kill off the bass, and they've, they've been unsuccessful, and it has had some impact on the trout fishery. But we're not really, we're not in this, the Rangy Lakes region, which, by the way, is you can drive, Route 16 is the only macadam road, really, in, in the area, and then all the logging roads are off of it. And you can drive for about an hour from the New Hampshire border to the town of Rangeley. And when I talk about the Rangy Lakes region, it's that, that stretch of road. So all the water that we're talking about tonight is within this hour stretch on Route 16. So there's plenty of bass and pike in Maine. It's just not in the stretch that I fish or that we're talking yeah. about tonight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read this question. I probably know what your answer is going to be. But <laughs> Scott <laughs> okay. Stevenson in Pennsylvania, he says, if you could only fish for brook trout one more week in the Rangeley region for the rest of your life, where would you go, and when would you go there? He's asking about your secret spot. That, I, I was just going to say, Scott, do you really think I'm going to answer that question? <laughs> oh, gosh. So, anyway, yeah, can, we can all I, have can, our can spots. I, can I tell you a quick story? Um, sure. Do we, yeah. I don't know if we have the time? Um, yeah, yeah. We okay. Move quick. Uh, so, yeah, so... <laughs> so I wrote this book, Shadows in the Stream, and as I said, each chapter was a different lake, stream, or pond. And so there is a place, maybe it's a 10-minute drive from my cabin. It's one of my favorite spots. You kind of walk down a very narrow trail with balsam and spruce on either side, and after a 10-minute hike in there, you come upon water that you wouldn't expect, and it's really a great spot. So it is one of my favorite spots. I drive up to it one day, and sure enough, there's an SUV there with Massachusetts plates. And, ah, damn, okay. So I said, I'm not going to bother the guy. And I drive back to my cabin. I have lunch. I wait an hour or so, and I go back. And I'm driving up, and he's driving out. So I stop. I roll down my window. He rolls down. I say, hey, bub, I'm just really curious. How, gosh, did you find this particular spot? You know, it's not in the middle of nowhere. And he picks up. The book, Shadows in the Stream, he says, some guy from New Jersey wrote this book. I've been following it around all week long from one stream to another. So uh, <laughs> when, I got, when, I, when I got back to my cabin, I told my wife the story. She, says, she said, well, you got two choices. Either stop grousing about people fishing in your favorite spots or stop writing books, but you can't have it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell him you were the writer? No, no, I just smiled. No. And, and, have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Seamoth yeah. in Gulf Coast, Texas, he says, I'm planning to fish the area on June 6th through 20th. Do you have any advice for flies, lakes and rivers, dries, nymph streamers, pretty much the ones you talked about before? Yeah, yeah. I certainly would have that gold-ribbed hairs here. And mm-hmm. as I said, you can fish it in so many different ways. A really great technique is this. Most trout fishermen are, you know, they're conditioned to the idea of, you know, a perfect drift, no drag, no movement on the fly. And all that's true. But in this area of Maine, again, where those fish are really predacious, these are not gentle fish. I mean, they're going to nail anything. 
you want movement on that fly. So if you're going to do a dead drift, at some point during that dead drift, if you're not getting hits, just give it a twitch. Give it a twitch, and you, sometimes you'll get you'll just get one hellacious hit from that twitch. It's movement on the fly, even on a dry fly. You know, you're doing a dead drift. If you're seeing you're not getting any action, even with that dry fly, and I know it goes against you know tradition, give that fly a twitch, and you're going to be shocked at what's going to happen. So you know, give that a try. Mm. Uh, use your wet flies, and I think you'll have a good vacation there. Louie in Honolulu wrote in, he says, have you heard of King and Bartlett? He said, sure I went have. there in September 2021, yep. and he says, in three days I landed more than 30 wild brook trout from three to five pounds. Fly fishing from a boat. Is that a lake, King and Bartlett? Uh, King and Bartlett is a camp. It, it actually doesn't exist anymore. Oh. It, it's closed. I don't know about that. You know, he said it's over five pounds. Now, what was his name, Louie? Uh, I don't yeah. know if Louie's telling us a fish story or not, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but maybe he was over there in 1850 or 1860. I'm not sure. No, I'm just. Yeah. I'm just uh, I've seen him on, on Facebook. I've seen a lot of. Oh. His, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, King and Bartlett was a sporting camp that was around for a while, and it's now closed, closed to the public. I do want to just mention if you have an opportunity to stay at one of the traditional Maine sporting camps. Man, it's it's really great. I mean, you're going to feel you're actually standing in the shoes of anglers going back to the 1800s. These camps have been around mm-hmm. since that long, and two in the area that really do a great job. I had mentioned Bozbuck Mountain Camps, Mike and Wendy Yates. They really run a, a great camp there, and that'll give you access to all the different sections of the McGalloway River. And the other camp is Grant's Camps, and that's on the Kennebago River. And again you'll have access to the entire river. You know, a lot of these rivers are closed. They're not closed to the public, but they have gates along the logging road because the logging companies own these roads, and so they've gated a good portion of the road. You can't get your car through. You can hike through. You can put a bicycle, mountain bike through to get access to the water, but again, you might be hiking two miles to get to the river. But if you stay at one of these camps, one of these lodges, I should say, then you're going to have a key, and you'll be able to get behind, you can, you know, drive your truck or car past the gate and get to the water. And that's water mm. that is, there's very little fishing pressure on those parts of the river that are behind the lock gates. And again, you can get access to them by staying at one of these camps. And the other benefit is, again, you're becoming a part of that history that I'm so fond of. And yeah. I think it's worth at least once giving it a shot. Yep. Good. Well, let's take a, another quick break, and then when we come back, I want to run through the remaining time we have, run through the different rivers that exist up there, and you can tell us a little bit about each one so people can get sure. familiarized there. So hang tight, and I'll be right back. Yep. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish in their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish and to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. 
These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, you can go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Bob Romano about Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, put it in that form on our homepage. Send it in, and we'll see if we have time to answer tonight. Okay, Bob, have to move fast here because we've only got 15 minutes left here. But I kind of wanted to run through the major rivers there, and maybe you can just give us a little, little synopsis of each one as we go through sure. so people can kind of understand what kind of river it is. Is it heavily fished? Is it easily accessible? That kind of thing. You've got the list we've got here. Should we just start at the top? Sure. With the A's? Um, yeah. Yep. So the Adriscoggin River, if you're coming from the west into the Rangeley Lakes region, you're going to actually hit the Adriscoggin River before you even get into, cross over the border to Maine. Now, the Adriscoggin is a big river, and it actually travels from its headwaters in New Hampshire uh, all the way through the entire state of Maine, ending at the ocean. But our section of the Adriscoggin, as I said, it's really in New Hampshire. And it's a put and, that part of the river is a put-and-take river. It has, quite frankly, almost any species you can think of. So it's got rainbow trout, brown trout, brook trout, landlocked salmon, bass, probably pickerel as well. But uh, it is stocked. It is very underutilized, and you can fish it from you a drip boat. You can all right, so we were talking about the Adriscoggin River, and I said it was a put-and-take river in New Hampshire. Right. Uh, and when you cross over to the main border, now you're going to, the next river is going to be the McGalloway. And okay. the McGalloway, I'm going to talk a little quickly here to make up for time, but the McGalloway okay. has... We can run over. We can run over yeah. a bit, so... Okay. So the McGalloway has three sections, and the lower section is right on Route 16. It's accessible, and it's a tailwater, so you can fish it all season long. It's just as cold in July and August as it is in, in May and September. Again, no river for old men. So you've got these major rapids throughout the entire river, and you've got uh, these very large deep pools that you cannot wade very much into them. You're fishing along the edges. And it's a great river, the nymph, and to use streamers, mostly subsurface, but there's some very large fish in the McGalloway River. The middle section, you're going to fish that in the last two weeks of May. That's about 13 miles up a logging road above the, the Aziskahas Lake. And then there's an upper section, which is God's country. It's called the Parmacini Track. Local people speak about it in whispers. Many of them have never been there. It's all behind locked gates. And that is a very special uh, place to fish. So that's the McGalloway River. Now, uh, when you say, uh, again, yep. going back to yep. the lock gates, these are, they are public accessible. You just have to walk. Correct. Is that the... Yeah, it's literally a bar that goes across the road. It's really not a gate, but it's a bar that goes across the road. It's locked. And you can't get a vehicle across unless you've got a key. So if you stay yeah. at one of the lodges, you could open the gate, right. close it behind you, yeah. But you could, but it's not you know, private guys, property, per no. se? You're not going to? Okay. No, no. In okay. fact, the Parmacini Track, there's at most maybe six camps on Parmacini Lake, you know, similar to my camp, and that's it. There's nothing else up there other than bear and moose and, and otter mm. and, and fish, yeah. 
So yeah. that, that's the McGalloway, and if you keep going west on Route 16, you go down a different logging road, and you're going to come to Upper Dam, which we talked about before. Upper Dam is holding back the waters of Mooseluk Magantic Lake, and those waters are flowing through the dam into Upper Richardson Lake. And for maybe less than a quarter of a mile, you're fishing Richardson Lake as if it were a river, and it's basically that water coming out of the dam. It's very big water, very heavy water coming out of the dam, and there's some awfully large fish that reside in that section. And the only way in is to take that logging road down the upper dam and then hike in from there. Just continuing west on Route 16, and again, Route 16 from the New Hampshire border, say from the McGalloway River to Rangeley, the town of Rangeley, is about an hour's drive. And all these rivers I'm describing are literally down logging roads either to the south or the north of Route 16, which is running you know, basically west to east. So the next river is the Kasuptic River, and the Kasuptic River runs into Kasuptic Lake, and if you just keep going up the river, um, you're going to, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 miles of river, and eventually there's a tiny little pond called Kasuptic Pond, which is where this stream originates, and that is some of the best small stream fishing that you're going to find anywhere anywhere in the land. It really is, is one of my favorite favorite places to fish. We're not talking large fish here, but you know, right. we're talking just a fish is going to flash almost every time you, you put a fly in the water. About 20 minutes down the road, again, driving west to east is the Kennebago River. Kennebago so this River. Route six, this Route yeah. 16 is the key <laughs> That's right. uh, road that to connect everything, it seems like. It, huh? It's the only road. It's the, oh, only okay. Macadam, yeah, it's the only Macadam Road. Everything else are, are dirt and you know and grit logging roads off of Route 16. Yeah, and okay. it's just a you know it's a two-lane road, one lane in each direction. Uh, yeah. Part of Route 16 did not have phone service until around 19 I don't know 85 maybe 1990. That was a big deal when they finally got the phone lines running all the way. But continuing, the next river is the Kennebago River. The Kennebago River is, um, again, about 16 miles, maybe, from the lake, you know, where it ends, all the way up to Grant's Camps on Big Kennebago Lake. So the first mile or so is completely open to the public, and you can drive a vehicle along the river, and then again you hit a lock gate. And So if you want to fish the rest of the river, you either have to hike in or you could stay at Grant's Camps, and then you would have complete access all the way up to the lake. I'm going to say that's about six miles. And then above the lake, again, is public water, no gates, and you can fish that, geez, almost up, up into Canada. But it's a much smaller stream at the top above the lake than it is below the lake. The Kennebago is really a landlocked salmon river. It's known for its landlocked salmon. It's a lot easier to wade than the McGalloway. You don't have those heavy rapids. You have more of the classic, almost like Atlantic salmon pools that you might find oh, nice. up in Canada and New Brunswick. Yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful river. It's worth staying at Grant's Camps to, just to fish it. The Rangeley River is really more of a stream, and it fishes well in May and in September. It, it, during the summer, you're really not going to get much action in there. You're going to get, you know, perch and chub and whatnot. Oh. It really isn't, it doesn't 
compared to some of these other rivers. The Rapid River is probably the best river in the region. It's the best known river in the region. There's no real, it's very difficult to get to. It's gated from all sides. You can go in from the New Hampshire side, but you take these constantly changing logging roads. I couldn't even give somebody directions because the logging roads change all the time. And when you get to a gate, you're, after you finally get to that gate, you're going to hike for about an hour, and that will bring you up to a place called Middle Dam, which is at the bottom of Richardson Lake. So if you think of the, you know, Muslim Magantic goes to Upper Dam. From Upper Dam, you got Upper Richardson, Lower Richardson, Middle Dam, and then from Middle Dam to another lake is six miles of the Rapid River. And if you think the McGalloway River is tough the way, the Rapid River is even tougher. But the Rapid River has been known for a very long time as having probably the biggest brook trout in the region. Again, a lot of history. The way there is history at Upper Dam, there's a whole bunch of history surrounding Middle Dam. If you're going to fish that area, you want to stay at Lakewood Camps. That's the third sporting lodge. And they're right on Middle Dam. That will give you access to the uh, entire river. Now, these Camps Lodges that you're talking about, uh, the historical ones, do they, is that pretty much do it yourself out of the lodge, or are they providing guides, or can you get guides? What's the normal setup there? Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're going to pay for the guides, but yes, right. they'll have guides there available to take you out and, and show you what flies to use and, you know, where the more productive pools and runs are. It's all, you know, everything is there. So you take your meals, a, a community room, and then usually, not usually, there are cabins, separate caverns on either side of the main lodge where you'll stay. And usually they're one-room cabins with a bath and a wood stove. They're fairly primitive. Mm-hmm. Food's usually pretty good at these lodges. They usually have pretty good uh, cooks. And then you know, you're right on the water, you know, all three of these lodges. You're literally right on the water. And, again, if you wanted a guide, they'd be available. They're also very family-friendly. So, you know, you bring in the wife and kids, and maybe they don't fish or they don't fish as hard as you do. You know, they could sightsee. They could photograph. They could hike. They mm-hmm. could just sit out in the sun and read a book. They're all on lakes. So, you may be fishing the rivers, but if you did want to fish the lake or you want to troll or the kids want to go out in a canoe or kayak, that's all available to them. So these aren't like super plush luxury lodges? No. Are, yeah. No. Okay. These, are, these are literally the lodges that existed in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They, some of them, maybe it's only the third owner. You know, wow. it's gone some of these owners have, you know, will have owned it for, you know, 40, 50 years until they're just too old to run them, and then it goes on to someone else. So, again, it's just wonderful history. But, no, these are not uh, – I mean, I've seen some of the lodges, in, quite frankly, in Colorado and Montana. And, again, everything out by you guys is just majestic, right? <laughs> in Maine, it's just a little bit different. It's a little more homespun and, yeah. and a little bit more traditional. You're going to see the uh, – stuffed bear or deer in the foyer there and the cabins you might have a mice running a mouse or a red squirrel you know running across the rafters and and if it's raining you might even get a little bit of moisture in the cabin but honestly just to be partake in that tradition it really is worth it if only the walls could talk right yeah yeah no question about it yeah yeah now you were saying these these places are on the lakes and so forth what we didn't talk about are the uh, the ponds of the area. Is 
tell us a bit about that. And is that as popular or just different than the, the rivers? What? Yeah, I, I don't think the ponds are as popular. The local folks are going to, of course, know about the ponds. Uh, but I think sports coming from away aren't going to know so much. And most of these ponds, well, I should say this, that there are ponds that are very accessible right in the town of Rangeley. But when I think of ponds, I'm thinking of those backwoods ponds, and those are less accessible. You're either going to take your four-wheel drive and maybe drive 10 miles down a logging road and, and then find the trail and hike in the trail, or you may be hiking up a mountain to get to a pond at the top of the mountain. The fishing is going to be great. Again, you know, you're not going to catch trophy trout in those ponds, but you're going to you're going to have uh, days where where you know you're you're going to catch quite a few fish, and that's good dry fly fishing in the ponds. In the summertime, you're going to have patches of caddis, and again in the springtime, um, you're going to have your mayflies. Usually, your classic quills are going to be be on the water. Right. Before I forget, there's another streamer that you do want to have while you're up there. There are two patterns I want to, or three patterns if we got the time that I want to talk about. One is a leech pattern. Some of these streams are more slow moving, especially the upper Megalloway and the upper Kennebago, and they're somewhat tannin stained. So in those slow moving sections, if you want to use a leech pattern, you're going to have some luck with that. And I mean, that could be as easy as a woolly bugger with some mm -hmm. weight on it, or you could have the classic leech pattern itself. Another fly you want to have is an ant pattern. We have sporadic hatches of flying ants all season long, especially in the summer. You never know when they're going to come on, and they may only come on for an hour or so. But, you know, I would say in sizes 16 and 18 and 20, you may want to just have a couple of brown and black ant patterns just in case you come upon one of those. And then the last pattern that I think is helpful and has a little history behind it on the Rapid River and on the McGalloway River, and probably on the Kennebago as well, late summer, early fall, we have a really, really large stonefly that's coming back to the river to lay its eggs. And when that happens, that's a real chance to catch one of these big fish on the surface as opposed to subsurface. And Again, if you want to use a modern pattern, you're going to use a stimulator. You know, you're just going to skitter that uh -huh. across the surface. But Maine's version, quite frankly, of a stimulator is a Hornburg. I don't know if you've ever heard of that pattern. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, so in New England, it is the go-to pattern. You know, everybody, uh, you got to use a Hornburg, you've got to use a Hornburg. And the interesting thing is that a Hornburg was created by a guy whose name was Hornburg, but he was a warden in Wisconsin. He had nothing to do with New England. Uh, but but that guy Joe Bates I was talking about, so when Joe Bates came out of the Army, all his experiences at Upper Dam, he ended up writing three books uh, all about uh, streamer fishing and large brook trout fishing, and in his first book, he wrote about the Hornburg, and it just it took off in Maine. I have one quick story. I'm looking at my watch here. Do we have a, a maybe two minutes for a story? Yeah, two minutes, and then we got to wind it up here. Okay, so really, really quickly. When I first time in western Maine, and my wife and I are at Bozbuck Mountain Camps, and I'm kind of a neophyte fly fisherman, Tom Rideout, who was a very well-known guide in the area, owned Bozbuck Camps at the time. He looked at my knot from my leader to my fly line and said, is that the way they tie knots in New Jersey? Because I didn't know how to tie a knot. And, and I wasn't catching many fish that first trip, and Tom puts a hornberg in my palm and says, I tell you what, Bub, these big fish like big flies. Try this. 
So that night, it's raining cats and dogs. It's the last night in camp. And my wife says, we got to go out. My father says, fishing in the rain is the best time. And I said, well, yeah, maybe in the rain, but not in a gale. She says, no, no, we've got to go out. We've got to go out. So we go out to this spot, you know, and we're fishing. And I'm trying to get that hornberg to stay on the surface. And the wind is blowing so bad at my back that the hornberg is just tappling back and forth, hitting the surface, going up in the air, hitting the surface, going up in the air. The biggest brook trout to this date that I've ever seen in my life comes flying out of the – the tail is past the surface, grabs the hornberg out of the air, and the fight is on. Well, I get that fish to my boot. And just as I'm leaning down to hopefully grab it, it turns and it breaks off. It, it takes the hornberg with it. It's gone. So next morning we're checking out, and I go to Tom. you got to give me a dozen of those flies. You have no idea, you know, the size of the fish, and I'm talking and talking. And he looks at me and he says, Bob, I don't remember what fly I gave you. I give different flies to different people. And he says, what fly did I give you? And I'm thinking, and I couldn't think of the name. I'm thinking and I'm thinking. And what do I say? It's so silly, but I, I look at him and I said, the Goldberg, you know, the Goldberg. And he looks at me and says, a, a Jewish fly? Mazel tov. <laughs> so that story, you're going to see that if you read one of them, I'm not going to tell you which book it's in, but in one of those books, the character goes to what I just told oh, you. Oh, okay. And, and it was you. Is the, is the Goldberg. <laughs> so you've got to have uh, one of those Jewish flies because they yeah. really, really work well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks for that. Thank you for that, Bob. That's a, a sure. great way to end tonight. Well, hang tight, Bob. We're going to give away uh, some things, in, including your book. So uh, hang tight with me a few more minutes, and we'll we'll do just that. But we got to wrap it up. We're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and giving away Bob's book, latest book, River Flowers. So hang tight, folks, and we'll be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in, on their fly shop and online. If you're looking for advice, just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today. That's UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, UglyBugFlyShop.com or 866-845-9284. And just a quick reminder, everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show. It says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that and give us some feedback. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now we're going to give away some prizes. The winners for these drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive the prize. First, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support, so go check them out. So let me fire up my database here and press my Go button. And it looks like Josh Sheary. Josh Sheary in Pennsylvania is the winner of the one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. So congratulations, Josh. And I know you'll enjoy that membership. Now we're going to give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. 
which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. So check them out. They have other periodicals as well as books that they publish, great, great publisher in the fly fishing realm. So again, I go button here, and it's going to be uh, Bob Garman in Pennsylvania for the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal subscription. So congratulations, Bob um, Garman. We will contact you gentlemen after the show and uh, get you hooked up to get those prizes. Now we're going to give away Bob Romano's book, River Flowers, and his latest book that was just released in December. And we do have some of his books listed on our website on the homepage there and under Bob's bio page. So you can find links there. Some go to Amazon, some go to our site. So you can find the books there. So the question is, and you put your answer in on that form on the homepage where you've been asking questions throughout the night. Give me your name and your location and put in your answer there. First person wins that gets it correct wins. The question is, give me one of the names of the legendary fish that Bob told us a story about. The legendary fish. Give me one of the two names that fish goes by. And you'll get yourself a copy of Bob Romano's book, River Flowers. So we'll see if anybody was paying attention there, Bob. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now we, we got to wait a second for, uh, there's a slight delay in the broadcast and then we got to wait for these guys to type and gals to type and they're probably better at tying flies on than they are at typing, but uh, we'll see here. <laughs> and I'm wondering if they're still hearing me. Uh, oh, I can hear you. You can hear me. Yeah, I'm not getting an answer here. Oh, maybe we, oh, they're starting to come in now. Okay. Let's see here. It looks like, well, this first answer is Pincushion Pete. Is that one of the names? That's it. Yep. That's it? Got okay. It. And the other one was White Nose Pete, I guess, right? Yes, that was um, it. A.K.A. <laughs> <laughs> ben, Patane, Patane in Portland. You got yourself a copy of Bob Romano's book, River Flowers. Ben, what you need to do is you can use the same form you just filled out, send me your address so that we can get that over to Bob and he can send you out a copy. Give me your shipping address. I've got your name. I've got your email address. Just get me that shipping address and we'll be taking care of you. So uh, thanks for paying attention. And oh, here's another one. Featherlip Phil. Okay. That was <laughs> that kind of describes it, it sounds like, but not quite. Yep. Anyway, great. And so Bob, hey, Really a pleasure talking to you. It was fun talking about an area that I've never been, but I want to go now. Those lodges sound like just up my alley. I'm not the posh kind of guy, but yes. that sounds like it's right up my alley. So thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, you're welcome, Roger. I want to just give my email address, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so if anybody has any additional questions or they're, they're planning a trip and they want some information, or if they want an autographed book as opposed to, you know, just getting a book through Amazon, you can send me an email at mcgalloway at mac.com. Uh, mcgalloway is the river, so that's M-A-G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y at mac.com. Okay. All right. Great, great. Well, thanks great. for that offer. I'm sure folks will take you up on that. It's always nice to have a local connection up there when you're trying to sort it out. So uh, thanks so much for offering that, Bob. 
And uh, thanks, thanks again for being on tonight. Thank, thank you. Our next broadcast will be on March 2nd. So, yeah, I'm skipping one in February. Guess where I'm going? I'm going fishing. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm taking a, about 10 days off and going down to Campeche, Mexico, to chase baby tarpon. So, so that's where I'll be, and I'll see you at uh, the beginning of March, March 2nd for the next show. And on that show, I will interview Susan Thrasher. And our topic for the show will be Music City Fly Girls. Now, Susan is a professional guide and instructor in East Tennessee. She co-founded the Music City Fly Girls. It's a no-drama fly fishing club, which is a bit different than most clubs that, that you may have been a part of. So join us to find out how they run their meetings, plan their outings across North America, and learn from their journeys. You might just get some great ideas for your club. Be there and listen in. And I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Thank <laughs> you.